Hey everybody, my name is Alex and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. So before we get started, I just want to thank everybody who has been listening to the Tokyo Ghoul episode in which I call that show a tone poem that's kind of bad. And I just love that a bunch of you have listened to that and not like, just been like, nope, nope, right off the edge of it. But also thank you to everybody who's been listening to my episode my Sunday edition about streaming apps. The next Sunday edition will be about, will be a little bit more long form and rambly. Not too much more, but less, less considered than they normally are because it's a kind of fantasy lark into what a anime streaming monopoly looks like. So look forward to that coming out this Sunday, as soon as I fucking edit it. But in the meantime, I want to talk about a older movie, uh, an older movie that came out in, I want to say 2015, 16, but that movie is a Studio Ghibli movie directed by Goro Miyazaki called From Up on Poppy Hill. In some places, you can tell what time of year it is by which flowers are in bloom. In Yokohama, it's which boats you see passing through the harbor. We have a great view of the boats from my house on Poppy Hill. It seems the whole country is eager to get rid of the old and make way for the new. But some of us aren't so ready to let go of the past. I know how much you miss your father. I hope you find someone. Then maybe you won't need to raise those flags anymore. Umi, come see this! What is it? Oh! Looks like someone's getting your messages! supply ship, but his ship sank. What's this? That's a boat I often see passing by. This might sound crazy, but I think it's answering your flags. Answering my flags? Now, for those of you who don't know, 
the Studio Ghibli filmography or the library of films that they've created hasn't been widely available on streaming at all, really. You could you could probably go buy it from iTunes, or you could go buy a digital copy or a, a physical copy. And there has been there's always been the Studio Ghibli box that you can buy directly from Studio Ghibli's website. And you can buy it in Blu-ray and DVD editions. But their entire filmography has never been available in on a widely available streaming platform, to my knowledge. I think any streaming platform, really. Actually, that's not true. Tales from Earthsea, which is a dumpster fire, from what I've heard, I've only ever been able to make it through about 10 minutes, uh, was on Netflix for a time. But things like Princess Mononoke, things like Pompoko, certainly, things like Pocoroso, the old classics and newer things like what we're talking about this week from up on Poppy Hill were widely unavailable to streaming platforms. And part of the reason that is true, and I just want to go over this because it's, it's culturally significant, if you will, but part of the reason that this is true is because the way Studio Ghibli primarily makes money is product sales and licensing. So if they are going to license their film library out to someone, that person better be paying through the fucking nose. And now, for the first time, HBO Max launched on the 27th, which I believe was yesterday. Yesterday at the time of recording this. I'm recording this on the 28th. But it launched on the 27th, and Studio Ghibli's entire filmography was available and they called it the Studio Ghibli collection and for a monthly cost of like 14 bucks or I think 13.99 to be exact but actually maybe 14.99 I'm not sure because I got upgraded from HBO now for that cost per month that's a pretty good deal it's a pretty like good way to watch every Studio Ghibli movie ever if you are so inclined and want to do something on your with your quarantine. So I decided to watch one of them. I picked one first and I picked From Up on Poppy Hill second because I thought it, I've seen pieces from Up on Poppy Hill before, not the entire film. So this is a very it's a very odd movie. And that's because it's not directed by Isao Takahata or Hayao Miyazaki. It's directed by Hayao Miyazaki's son, Goro Miyazaki. And there's something about Goro's style that seems less high-end, if that makes any sense. And that's not as bad as it sounds. There are... There's still certainly that Studio Ghibli feel to the movies, but they feel closer to the realm of everyday anime fare than to the realm of 
like a Princess Mononoke, where there's nothing else like it, really. There are things that imitate Princess Mononoke, but there's nothing quite like that thing. There are pieces of other things that are like it, like um, the ancient magic... Magus Bride has some of the same mysticism and wonderment around nature, but it doesn't... If anything, it's pulling that stuff out of Princess Mononoke and using it for its own purposes instead of doing it of its own volition in a way because that's, that's how big a deal that movie probably is. And also, Studio Ghibli has been... It has been, it has been a rocky road for Studio Ghibli in the West. Um, for a time, their the distribution license was with Disney because of John Lasseter, infamous shitbag. Now that he is, wanted to put out movies like Spirited Away, wanted to put out movies like Princess Mononoke, wanted to put out movie all the Ghibli movies because for a long time. The Studio Ghibli movies were prized first and foremost by people in the animation industry. They were technical and artistic feats, and feats in storytelling as well. Don't get me wrong. But there, are, but that's not the only kind of movie that Studio Ghibli has. Studio Ghibli also has a movie that I've mentioned a bunch of times, which you can now go watch on HBO Max, called Ocean Waves. The thing about Ocean Waves is it is a made-for-TV-ass, made-for-TV movie. It just is. The best way I could describe it is it's this weird, like, mumblecore-esque movie. It's a movie in which there's a lot of emotional stuff that happens, but nothing actually happens. And I love it because it's got this, like vibe of a modern movie and you get to kind of hang out in Tokyo with these, you know, young, rambunctious teens for, like, however long the movie is. I think maybe 90 minutes to two hours. Probably 90 minutes because it's made for TV. But that should just give you an idea. Dude Ghibli does have ocean waves. That's, like, it's not, certainly not a top, it's, once again, it's that is much closer to standard anime fare, but it has the, like, Studio Ghibli flair and feel to it. From Up on Poppy Hill has that same quality to it. And that, in many ways, makes it feel different in a good way, different in a way that it's representing something that the you know, two two old dudes at Studio Ghibli who who have directed and put out much of its catalog, Isao Takahata and Hayao Miyazaki, just aren't interested in. And the first way you can tell this is Girl is much more interested in urban settings than his father is. His father has deep love for nature and an appreciation for history and he, his respect for nature and history, 
are what lead you to things like Princess Monoki, or what leads you to things like Spirit Away. They even lead you kind of to things like um, The Wind Also Rises. But the closest thing he has to a, like, city folk movie is um, Howl's Moving Castle. And that's based off of a book. That's not an original property. But the thing is, is that Goro took, this opp- took the opportunity of this movie to set it in, the mid- six- in Japan in the mid-60s. And Japan in the mid-60s looks a- has a very specific look to it. It is essentially... It, it's not like America was in the 60s. It's not like everything is getting bulldozed and like big trapezoids are going up. It's people are adapting the world around them to be mo- to be more modernized. So you have like the traditional winding hilly Japanese village with neon signs and signs for Coca-Cola and signs for cigarette brands and electric street lights and street cars and all of this stuff thrown on top of that setting. And it has this very history meets the future kind of vibe to it. It also has a very specific, like, fashion sense to it. And you see that in this movie a lot. You see the character, you see all the characters are dressed like they are in the 60s, not like they're, like, poor people. You, you see, but you also see, notably, older people, like um, the main character, Grandma, wearing traditional clothes, because that's what she wears. And this, so this movie is, This movie is about a girl who is being, who is, who is abandoned. It doesn't seem intentionally by her parents. And she is learning to find her place in a world where she doesn't have the guidance of her mother or father, especially for, in this case, her father. And she raises these ship flags up every morning to, so her father can find his way home because he was a captain of a Japanese Navy vessel in the Korean War. The thing that they don't tell you at first is that he's dead. You're, like, the movie basically says he's probably dead. He, he, may, he may be alive out there somewhere, but he's almost certainly dead. And this movie is two parts. Um, I think her name is Tomo. Tomo accepting, like learning to accept that, and learning and learning to move on from it, and form her own relationships, and be her own person, and determine her own future. And then you have. I really need to. I really need the characters. And then you have the love interest, the guy who is... 
in the, who is in the literature club, which means he publishes the newspaper, and the newspaper is, is so this is really interesting for me because I'm a I, I'm a graphic designer. I like seeing this stuff. They have a like second generation simple printing press where you have to cut all the dyes yourself and then you print it. So you cut a stencil, you place it over the ink, the like the ink pad, and then you stamp the whole thing down and only where the, the stencil was cut out leaves behind the ink. And then what they do is, for pictures is they leave spaces for pictures and they literally staple that shit onto the sheet. And, and they... they make multiple, multiple sets of pictures from the negative, and they distribute those, um, what they call the Latin Quarter Weekly, which is, the Latin Quarter is this movie's Goro Miyazaki Boo Radley House. Now, if you don't know what a Boo Radley House is, if you haven't read To Kill a Mockingbird, Boo Radley is a character in To Kill a Mockingbird who never comes out of his big old, decrepit, weird, southern mansion of a house. And his name, and his name was Boo Radley, and the moniker kind of stuck, pop culture-wise. When you say Boo Radley house to another person, generally speaking, they will understand what you mean. So the Latin Quarter is this big-ass Boo Radley house with multiple floors, and it is the club it is the club activity house, basically. It is the place where all the clubs for the school all operate. But the thing about this movie that I kinda love is that the clubs are the exclusive domain of all the boys in this movies in the in the school. The sports are all played by the girls all play sports. And they all think the boys are super fucking weird because they hang out and they do these weird club activities and you see all these club boys who are fucking bizarre. And it's very good when, like, you encounter this big oaf of a philosophy club guy and he's, like, quoting Plato at the two main characters. And they're like, we need to go. And, and so that's a, like... There are a lot of comedic touches here that it's not that they don't exist in Hayao Miyazaki movies, it's that, generally speaking, Hayao Miyazaki is more interested in telling more serious stories in animation than Goro, maybe. And Hayao Miyazaki... So Hayao Miyazaki structures his character differently. Um... There's, so you you don't have anything close to a villain in this in this movie at all. This movie's villain is the past, basically. And what? So you're following you're following Tomo you're following Tomo and the love interest that they get like closer and closer together and start to. Have feel, clearly have feelings for each other, even if they don't um, say it out loud. And Tomo ha initially has resistance to this, 
I'm gonna look up her name because drive me crazy if I'm calling her Tomo, and it's not. Um, but she, once she accepts it, she's just kind of okay with it. Her life doesn't drastically change. It just there's a new there's a new. Yuko is her name. Yuko. That's why I was thinking Tomo, because it ends in O. But Yuko's life doesn't drastically change. It just has something added to it now. And I think his name is Kazum. Is 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 Shiro. And Shiro is he, he is Adopted. It it made pretty clear. It made clear pretty quickly that he's adopted, and you find out that Chiro suspects that his father and to- and Yuko's father are just the same dude, and because the way that her, that Chiro's um foster like basically adopted dad puts it to him is. Yuko's father showed up one day, one night with a with a kid, and before he could raise any objections, Shiro's adopted mother had him in her arms, and it was all over. Because and that sounds odd at first, and then but this movie is about the history haunting the present, basically. I think it bumbles its way through that a little bit, but it's, for all intents and purposes, about history bumbling the present. And what I mean by that is, or history haunting the present. And what I mean by that is, is these kids are at this point like 15, 16, maybe that age. At some point, someone's parents should have sat them down and said, like, look, Specifically, Shiro's parents. Specifically, anybody's parents could have chatted down and said, "Look, you two aren't blood relatives. This isn't creepy. This is how this all adds together." But the thing is, is that there's this. Normally, when I when I encounter something like. An adult just hasn't told the child's character the truth. It infuriates me. It drives me up a wall. It, it, I, I have the John Green reaction, the, the author John Green reaction, of use your words to that kind of shit. Because it, it just bugs me. Because that, that is an inherently just stupid way to draw something out. But in the case of From Up on Poppy Hill, Yuko and Shiro, they never, they never really interacted before the scene in the movie where Shiro jumps off the roof into a, into a, rent, into a um, drainage pool, basically. And it, it has this, like... It has them realizing that they 
love each other, and then Shiro independently, basically affirming that Yuko's dad is probably his dad, creates this like ripple between them, and they they realize like this is gross, this isn't okay. We have to just be normal friends, and one of the things that One of the things I think that Goro Miyazaki struggled with is portraying emotions in his movies. And that could be because, generally speaking, Hayao Miyazaki movies are, have such an emotional core and such an emotional presence on screen that you can't... I mean... Prince, if Prince of Mindok, if Prince Mononoke doesn't have you screaming, give it its head at the end of that movie, like, you, you're dead inside. And they, through giving its character to all, all these strong emotions, Hayao Miyazaki movies pull you in better than something like a um from up on poppy hill even a movie like ocean waves has this real emotional core to it of young love and of fleeting love and of like summer romance that makes you like more invested in this like mid 90s like mumblecore nonsense movie than you ever thought you would be, in, at least in my opinion. But what From Up on Poppy Hill feels like, it feels like it's taking place two towns away from Kids on the Slope, if that makes any sense. Like, all the emotional shit is happening in Kids on the Slope, which is, like, all emotion. <laughs> but... They're in this, like, sleepy, shoreside, Navy Harbor-supported town. Everything goes at its own pace. Nothing really... Nothing, nothing exciting is going on in the background. It's this love story about this complicated, potentially complicated relationship that these two characters have with each other and then with their father figure their biological fathers because what you find out ultimately is that shiro is not yuko's father's kid he is yuko's father's best friend in the military's kid and Yuko's dad was just like, I'm not letting this baby go into foster care. It will die. And so he gave it to what is, who is now Shiro's adopted dad. So, uh, but the thing is, they take the entire movie to answer that question. They take the entire movie to, like... They find out that they're allowed to be together, and then fucking zoom out, credits roll, baby. Like, they could, like, oh, we're done here. We're good. It's fine. Pay no mind to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> but 
I, and the love, the other thing is that the love story, the like love aspect of this is so subtle, so like small that it doesn't, I'm not saying I need a love story as dramatic as Nana, and I've mentioned Nana a bunch of times on this podcast lately, but if you while listen to the podcast on Nana, it's in the feed, you can go find it. But I am saying that, like, I, I want more of a sense that these characters truly and deeply care about each other. And you, you don't really get that. You get this kind of, like, lingering fondness that doesn't really... It doesn't quite get you there, I, and there are, and there are, but there are also lots of great touches. There are, there's a who I, a character named Sachko who is basically Japanese sober Jackson Pollock. Um, the there is the, there is the Boo Radley house of the movie, which is cleaned up by the end of the movie and they like make this big impassioned speech about like preserving history and updating history instead of wiping it from the map to the chairman of the school and he says this school still needs a building so now it's my job to figure out a different place to put it which is great he's a great character he's a great he's a great comedic touch when the film is starting to get desperate and serious because you can feel the film winding itself down. And I think, I think there were more, I think the word diegetic, I think there were more diegetic and story and clear story options to get this story across and not have to split those narratives kind of down the middle because at one point you have them repairing the school and you have the track of are our dads the same? Are we sibling fucking? Are, are, are we in, getting into an incest territory thing? And you could weave those together more tightly and you'd have a tighter movie where it feels like one thing led to another, led to another, led to another, not this thing over here path on down the line, this thing over here, path on down the line, and they don't meet at the end. That's the key thing, is they don't meet at the end. And that's, that's probably the weirdest thing for me about this, about From Up on Poppy Hill, is that the, now that I think about it, is that they don't, like the puzzle piece, the, the puzzle isn't complete, the, the, the puzzle doesn't feel complete at the end because you were building two puzzles, basically. And they have... They also have something else in here. That they've, they've, and I've talked about this a little. They, they have stuff in this movie that is very typical of most movies, but not typical of a Studio Ghibli film. And what I mean by that is 
when they're fixing the the Latin Quarter, the crazy club building, which is a great environment, by the way. This I I'm trying to learn how to draw backgrounds better in my like artistic pursuits, and this movie is a like jaw-dropping movie background background wise. Everything. Every background you encounter is beautiful and like beautifully colored, and every every background looks like if you could take the characters off of it, that could be a background for your computer. But they they have things like they you've are told throughout the movie that Yuko's mother is off studying in in America. And then they bring her back only to have her as a plot device. Only to have her reveal the plot point that Yuko and Shiro's dad are, not the, are in fact not the same person as they, like they previously thought. They're different people. And then you have Shiro's adopted dad say to Shiro, like, you need to get, you need to get on this boat and talk to this captain because he knew... Because he knew your dad, and he'll be able to tell you definitively. And that's that's how that's how the movie ends. Is like they talk to this captain, and then like it's affirmed. Zoom out. No more anything. You. They use a lot of traditional things, like mother as a plot device, or they have a a straight up animation montage in this to, like, show the passing of time. Um, it show the passing of time with the, with the, um, Latin Quarter Weekly newspaper rag that they put out. And they, there's so many little things that they, they focus on and then they just lose focus. Until they come up again in like a side conversation, and then they go away, and you never hear about it again. It. This movie feels much more like a slice of like a like a slice of life show than a like Studio Ghibli film. And I haven't seen when Marnie when Marnie was there, but I. Heard it's okay, but the thing about Studio Ghibli films and once again, you can go watch their entire filmography on HBO Max. But um, the thing about their f- films is that they, generally speaking, they're concerned with these big ideas, and they execute. To tell these parables about big ideas, you know, Pocoroso is about a specific thing, and it's very against fucking fascism. Princess Monoki is about the environment. Spirited Away is about the environment. Even something like um, the Wind Rises. The Wind Rises is a story about not putting work at the expense of your family. And this movie feels like it it wants to be a love story, but it doesn't want to show you 
the whole love story. It doesn't want to show you the, like... It doesn't want to show you the kiss at the end. It doesn't even want to show you, like... It, it, but it's happy to pick and choose from other things in, you know, animation and film, but not put them to you to tell you the love story entirely. It, it feels like a newspaper article with red and then transfer and then like that was transmogrified or like molded into this movie. It feels like these two it feels like somewhere there is a Japanese newspaper with a picture of two like fifteen year old kids, a boy and a girl, holding hands and smiling at like at the camera on a dock. This is eerily close to an article that was written about me actually. Um and the story that was in that article somehow became this movie. And it's just... It's not that it doesn't have the potential to be as interesting as something like Princess Mononoke. Once again, I love fucking ocean waves. Give me some of that mumblecore garbage into my eyeballs right now. It's that it doesn't... The emotions don't feel intense. There isn't a, the, the most intense feeling is when Shiro affer, Shiro discovered that oh her dad might be my dad we could be doing an incest and in that moment when you when you put it together with him which by the way is not it's very much not foreshadowed it, it that plot point just like slides into the movie just like hey incest <laughs> and it just it, and like your your heart hurts for the guy cuz you know he likes this girl this girl likes him and all of a sudden now there's a real reason why they shouldn't be together but the way it's kind of just dropped in there makes it this makes it feel like this attempt at making this movie that was becoming pedestrian be less pedestrian again. Because it was about... It, this movie would be, a, I think, a much better movie if it was about a girl recovering from grief and falling in love. I don't think it needs a like, weird incest storyline. I think that if you had focused on her accepting accepting the fact that her father had gone her and her opening her heart to Shiro at, while they're repairing the thing while they're repairing the, the Latin Quarter building clubhouse building then it would be this like beautiful love story that would have this like touch of um what's that movie with um, touch of those have the touches of other rom coms that have happened before, and this movie has funny, funny, funny scenes in it. This movie has the scene 
with this girl just is like, that's not how you spackle. This is how you spackle. And she shows this big oaf of a guy how spackle. She just goes, you're really good at this. And her reply is, without, without even stuttering, well, my dad is the spackle king of the docks. And, like, they move on. <laughs> and it's just like a good little tidbit. They, there's a literal army of all the girls in the school just like, okay, the girl that, the boy that's just cleaning the club room, let's go. And they all suit up, grab brooms and buckets, and go to the Latin Quarter, clean the shit out of it. And they has this great, great cleaning montage where like all these students are doing all this cleaning bullshit and largely the boys are useless. But that, the, those parts of this movie were so fun and so cool and so deeply and so, and such a great demonstration of the time period and of the setting and of the visual language of the movie, that if you had figured out how to make this movie what I thought it was going to be, then I think you'd have a better movie. So, for example, so just give you an idea. The thing about this movie is it doesn't... It's for a rom-com. It has... That one central idea that is quickly dis that one central hiccup that is quickly done away with, the or we might have the same dad that's done away with pretty quickly. But what it could have done, it could have had Yuko forget to raise the flags. It could have had her so focused on her relationship with Shiro that she forgets to raise the flags, and that could be the wall. That would be a more realistic, more emotionally resident. Wall that would be the that would be grief getting in the way of the future. That would be the path getting in the way of the future in this movie, and they they come close to that, but they don't actually do it. And close counts in horseshoes and hand grenades in this case, and it, it she. Kind of fucks up dinner once is the way that this movie is like, oh, she's focusing on this guy and not on her, like, stuck-in-the-past life. But then it's, like, it's okay. And it doesn't, like, nothing bad happens. She does make a crappy meal and everybody's like, oh, she feels bad about not being able to go out with this guy because their dads might be the same. But that's really... That's the that's the extent of like the rough patch, so to speak, in this movie. Everything else feels pretty but pedestrian in terms of the love story. And like that. I'm not sure this is Goro's first film, but I think it is. I do know that at some point Hayao Miyazaki had to step in because it wasn't going the way he thought it should go because Hayao Miyazaki's a control freak. Weird old man. Um, but... 
it feels like actually actually I think Earthsea was Goro's Earthsea was Goro's first film. I'm pretty sure. This feels like he's finding his bearings, and it also feels like this would be great if it was a telev if it was a television show. This movie would be great if it was stretched out and it was a television show. And you could spend more time with the you could spend more time with the beautiful with the cool cool ass environment that is the Latin Quarter building. You could spend more time going through the love the like weird love story. You could actually show those characters falling in love because you'd be given that amount of time and that space for those characters to do that. If this was a full series, then it would be... It would be... Easier, easier to tell the kind of story they're trying to tell here. That makes any sense. So, oh, by the way, I just remembered the one, the one, like, Miyazaki movie that technically isn't on HBO Max, but you can go find that anywhere, and that's The Castle Cagliostro. But on that note, if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in whatever you're using to listen to me right now. If you liked, if you really like this podcast, you can give me a five-star rating on any podcast app of choice. Preferably iTunes, preferably Apple Podcasts, though, because that really helps the show. But until Sunday, when the Sunday edition on Monopolies will be out, I have been Alex, you've been listening to Lunchbox Radio, and I will talk to you on Sunday. <laughs>